Welcome to episode 10 of Fergo and the Freak. I'm Andrew Ferguson. You can find me on Twitter at AndrewLP. And joining me as always is League Freak, who you can find on Twitter at League Freak. Happy 10th episode, mate. Wow, 10 already. We're going really well. And this is going to be the best one ever, I reckon. I'm, I'm really excited for this one. Absolutely, because today we have a special guest. And for me, someone who loves statistics, I'm really looking forward to this. We have X Wallaby and now founder and owner of Gainline Analytics with us. Uh, ben Darwin, how are you today, mate? G'day, guys. How are you? All good. Now, I'm just going to say, today um, you're going to talk to us about team cohesion and um, things about us as trying to help what makes teams better. Um, and one team that has been struggling since you left was the, the Wallabies. They haven't won a Bledisloe Cup since you left. And they were actually undefeated in the in the World Cup in two thousand three, before um, you know injury forced you into retirement. So it's pretty clear that you were the greatest player the Australia's ever had in rugby union. So that leads us yeah. into what you do at Gainline <laughs> Analytics and um, <laughs> and how and how that all works. So give us a bit of introduction to I suppose yourself and and uh, Gainline Analytics, I guess. So, so let's um, clear up the, the Wallaby issue first. So uh, <laughs> Wallabies, Wallabies were winning before I got there and then pretty much started losing as soon as I arrived. Um, so, so 99 was the World Cup they went undefeated and then 03 was the one in which I retired. So I had a spinal injury 03 um, and it was kind of, I, I would never say the team was on the way out, but it certainly had started to fade in terms of performance. Well, we didn't realise that this fade would then last another probably 15 years, so it's still continued now since then. Um, part of the reason I started the company was was I was always interested in this idea about teams that punched above their weight. Have you guys ever heard that term before? Yes. Yep. And so um, and so people talk about Queensland State of Origin punching above its weight or the team I was at the Brumbies, you know, theoretically punched above its weight. But I didn't really understand the why. And generally, when teams do do very well, no one likes to ask too many questions, so it's sort of like, well, maybe I'm, maybe the individuals are the reason. So you've got a, you know, a Cameron Smith or the Slater at Storm, whatever it might be, that that is the reason why the teams are winning. But the more I looked at it, the more I sort of realised, like, those guys didn't start out so great. They weren't necessarily the, the leaders in their game when they began. So why is it that those guys go on to become so very good, whereas other guys, other clubs, don't necessarily have that that ability to make players into great players and make them successful over the long term. Um, so I, I, I was started coaching, and I also found as a coach, no matter where I went, that whatever I was doing was never really uh, exemplary of the outcome. So I coached some teams in Japan. They would win every game. I'd coach teams in Australia. They'd lose every game. I'd coach a high school. They'd win. But it, it wasn't like I was changing what I was doing. I was doing the same thing. And so I started to realise as a coach, I was having a, a limited impact um, in terms of what I could do to make the team better. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so I, I was I was interested in this idea of, of whether it were coaching was making a difference. And then I started looking at data analytics, and I was finding that most data analytics was what I would call a different version of the score. So you might say line breaks in rugby league. It, it tells you, you know, it tells you who's winning, but it doesn't necessarily tell you why doesn't necessarily say, okay, why has the Storm been so successful for so long? Or why have the Eels maybe not been successful as they would hope over a long period of time? So most most data analysis, let's say pass accuracy, 
is not necessarily giving you a cause, but it's just another outcome. So you get good passes, therefore you win. But it doesn't necessarily say why are they, why is this team so accurate or why is this team so inaccurate? Um, and so over time, I sort of wanted to really understand what was the actual root cause analysis of team success. Um, now, I actually started my business actually selling to French rugby clubs player availability data. So there's a, you guys know Zero Tackle? Yes. Um, yep. so, so it's sort of like a try to have a version of Zero Tackle for Rugby Union and Rugby League. And so we would have all of the player availabilities. And so a club would say, I want to buy a winger. And we'll say, okay, well, here's all the guys we think are of contract. And that did okay. But we started to notice things about certain teams. And there were certain teams that, that we, we found that if in the off-season, because we're watching a lot of signings, a lot of guys move around the world. So if a, if a club took up a lot of players and had promises of a huge level of success, they would do dramatically worse than the market thought they would. And I think if you remember the early stages of Mo and Kukash at Salford, mm-hmm. you know, he was promising we will be winning Super League within three years' time, you know, and they were losing to St. Helens by 40 or 50 that next yeah. weekend. Yeah. Um, and so and so then what would happen is that team would underperform and then the individuals would get blamed. The coach isn't up to it. The players aren't up to it. Um, whereas those, you know, the guys he was signing had been very successful at other clubs. That sounds um, a bit like the... Um... The Newcastle Knights at the moment, given they've been on spending sprees for the last two or three years, and well, still the Knights, the not Knights, the Knights for us, the Knights for us are getting exactly the results we thought they would at the moment. We have them actually a zero and six for this year. Oh, there um, you go. Yeah. So, so, but, but that's just using the measures that we've been looking at. Um, and so, if you look at a team as if you look at a team as a collection of skill, you'll get you'll get underperformance. You'll say, okay, let's say we take Newcastle, right? Is, does that just mean Nathan Brown's a terrible coach? No, not necessarily. He's been successful other places. He's he's had, I think he won a title with St. Helens, am I right to say? Um, yep. But if you look at it as, as a team, as a collection of understanding, it actually is, you can actually get a much more accurate model of where a team is at. So the teams that are at the bottom of the league for understanding would be teams like Newcastle, uh, the Titans, um the teams at the top of understanding would be teams like actually Canberra this year is really good. Um, uh, the the Storm have always been very good. The Roosters are very good. And so if you measure them in that measure, if you measure them using those measures, you're actually going to be have a pretty good sense of where a team is at. Interestingly, um, if you just take the idea of experience, in other words, how much people have played rugby league, it's that's not very accurate. I think the most experienced team in the NRL last year was the Eels. So, oh, yeah. and, and so that, that didn't go great. Um, so experience is one part of this, which is actually playing the game, but there's a different thing of the level of understanding between people. So we break up that understanding into understanding of your role, understanding of your you know defensive position. So obviously within the, – the reason rugby league is so good for us is that it's so stable. Rugby union, people are moving around the field all the time defending next to other people. Whereas with rugby league, at least the the edges they're quite stable, yep. and yeah, so you yeah. can actually map where guys have defended. Um, so you can look at where they've geographically defended their position. Then you can start to look at spines. You can also look at system. You know, if a, if you know maybe maybe Seabold at the moment is changing the way Brisbane plays, and so maybe they're changing geographically and they're changing their system. So guys are trying to adjust to that. And then you might have um, also. Yes, excuse me, I've got a cough. 
right. <laughs> um, you've also got understanding between people. So, you know, you, he, I've had a lot of conversations with um, Danny Baderis and talking about his understanding with Joey and you know, knowing just if he put his foot in a certain spot, then Joey could respond to that. Or you talk about Cronk and Smith and Slater and, you know, just the small nuances of amazing understanding between those guys so that words don't even have to be said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that, that, that understanding of understanding is what we're trying to reach and that actually saying, actually, you know, there's a reasonable level of, of predictability to how teams perform. And we actually find most teams pretty much perform where they should. And the coaches don't necessarily affect that as much as the market thinks. Wow. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you was there's a lot of things in there that you've said where they kind of go against a lot of uh, what team sport mainly is thought of in, in terms of, you know, the experienced team is going to go better than, than the inexperienced team and, and uh, buying in big name players from elsewhere is going to make you go better. How difficult has it been for you to break through biases like that and show that that's not necessarily the case that um the combinations are more important uh than than what we traditionally think are the markers for a team improving yeah i I think um can you guys still hear me okay yeah 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 so, so i think um it's been extremely difficult and one of the arguments we get is what we call the chicken and the egg argument which is if I've got great players, of course I want to keep great players. Mm. So, um, so, so people will generally say that recruiting somebody strengthens a team. But the way I would describe it is, it's like it's like paint. You got a lot of white paint. You know, if you add a little bit of pink, it's not going to do anything to it. But if you add a lot of different colours, then the whole thing just sort of gets thrown off. Mm-hmm. So, recruiting one player into an environment like, say, a, say a cronk into the Roosters. It was a very stable environment already. The data would support that they were very cohesive as it stood. So bringing Kronk into that environment, they'll have some teething problems early, but it's not it's not difficult. If you have chaos, you know, we can all think of teams that we regard as chaos, and we're not here to pay teams out here, but to say, okay, you, you bring a guy into a team that's functioning in chaos, he it's very difficult for that guy to be able to go in. So I, I look I think it was like a kitchen. If everyone understands their role, you know, in the kitchen, everyone knows what the menu is. You go in, they say, right, just go to the corner, chop carrots. Mm. Well, that's easy. You go to the roosters, I'll say, just do your bit here. You don't have to do anything else. Yeah, yeah. and storm, that's a big strength you know, of the storm. Co- yeah. Exactly. Whereas if you go into chaos and everyone's like, dude, we don't even know what's on the menu. Mm. Just just hang out here and see what happens. You know, how are you going to be able to be um, brought into that environment? And one of the terms we actually bumped into was this term called the Bayern Munich Mirage in football. So we looked at nine different sports over 30 years. And the Bayern Munich Mirage is you take someone out of a highly cohesive team and you put them into a team that isn't built that way and the player will never be the same again. Um, well, I was actually yeah. thinking Adam Blair when he, left yep. the, when he left the storm and went to the Tigers. And to, Tigers had a very, very fluid sort of style and it just didn't work for him and he hasn't been the same at any club since mm. so so in rugby league um i've actually had this referred to me as the melbourne storm mirage yeah <laughs> um, people call it the canterbury crusaders mirage um but like I, I look at a guy like clint newton going into the storm 
you know, and then winning a title and looking, you know, as, as good as he ever has. Mm. Um, and I, you know, one of the major things I've basically been doing is just talking to coaches. I've talked to all the different coaches involved in all these teams. And, you know, I, I, I actually found one of the most extraordinary press conferences I've ever seen was when Cameron Smith played his 358th game or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things they asked um, Bellamy was, what was it about Cameron Smith that you thought was so incredible as a young guy? And his response was, I don't remember him. There was nothing interesting about him at all, right? And we've seen this a lot, whereas, you know, a lot of guys, it's almost like they're preordained for greatness. Yeah. But if you actually look at it retrospectively, they're just normal blokes in normal systems. Dan Carter, you could be regarded as the same thing. Dan Carter used to be the reserve to a guy called um, Brendan McCullum, uh, the cricket captain for New Zealand. McCullum was yeah. a better 10 than Carter was. Um, so there's this kind of, there's this retrospective genius. And anyway, in this presser, Cameron Smith said, I think after the game to Craig, it was just an offhanded comment. He said, sometimes I think we made you, other times I think you made us. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I was kind of really interested by that. When we look at Bellamy as a coach, he's very, very successful. But, but he's he's very normal comparative to to getting the best out of his team. So if you take take the Storm as like the most cohesive team in the world, then by default they should win most of their games. Mm-hmm. Therefore, Bellamy pretty much wins most of the games that he should. Mm-hmm. But if you actually if you actually measure it. <clears throat> by that notion and say, okay, let's look at everybody who's coached in the NRL the last four years. We wouldn't rank Bellamy as the number one coach in the comp. We'd rank Griffin as the number one coach in the comp. Mm-hmm. Or Neil Henry at the Titans or, or Maguire at Souths because mm-hmm. they got the absolute capacity out of that list as it was constructed at that time. Mm-hmm. And so it's just another way to look at it. Like, Bellamy's, what is his state of origin record, 21%? Does that mean he's a poor coach? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Does that mean he's a poor coach? No, it means that the state of New South Wales comparative to the state of Queensland meant that he couldn't really fix the problem. Yeah. But if if you take it from the other way, that also means Mal's not a genius. Yeah, exactly. And Mal will very happily admit that. You know, he's a a very humble guy. It's like, you you know, he did a wonderful job, but he... Uh, he he had he had the 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 cards the cards dealt in his favour, and we do see that quite a bit with coaches. Now, I think what makes Bellamy good is list management. Mm-hmm. I think that part of the job, as he's done it, if you separate coaching and list management, is the list management of the storm has been very good. Now, obviously, the first criticism people are going to say is um, uh, the 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 uh, salary cap scenario, mm-hmm. but if you if you if you use that notion of the Melbourne Storm mirage, you could say that maybe the market was overvaluing the assets the Storm had. Mm-hmm. You know, they're saying, okay, we 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 Cameron Smith's gone from five thousand dollars a year to two and a half million dollars a year. Yeah. We want to bring him to us. Well, the Storm want to hold on to what they built. Yeah, even though it's overvalued even though we yeah. don't think Cameron's worth that much, but we want they to hold on to them. They to keep market. their cohesion sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. yeah. And so um, th- th- that's, that for me is a, is, a, is a sort of like almost a miscalculation by the marketplace um, because the clubs that do develop from within over the long term do much better than the clubs who buy. Now, yeah, I, that, I would have – sorry? 
And and that's definitely one of the things in rugby league, and you see that time after time. We've seen that with a few clubs where the team, and I look at my club, the Penrith Panthers, where they had a time during the early noughties where, you know, they brought in a couple of experienced heads, but that their, their premiership win was built upon a, a group of young players that they just all brought through at the same time. And they had a cup, they had a losing season or two before that, but you could see them gel, starting to gel together. And then all of a sudden it just all, it all starts working. It all starts clicking in 2003. I would say too, though, is that one of the things with that team that was different about that team was it had a lot of shared Cronulla experience. Yeah, yeah. So we, we actually have a number for that. It's called the Pulatua Coefficient. Oh, wow. I love those names. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, so Tony Pulatua, right. which is if you put together if you put together a bunch of guys and you merge. So it's basically it's like Lang brought a whole stack of guys across. Mm. And, and they had those young guys, like you said, that came into the group. Mm-hmm. Now, cohesion best manifests self in defense. If you remember that team, it used to win games like 40-30. Mm-hmm. Like it came home like a freight train in that 03 season. They weren't the best defensive team in the comp, but the, but it took about eighteen months of the two groups coming together and winning. Yeah. Um, but it was yeah, you, you're right. It was it was a bunch of young guys who had come through that that system. I think the hard part though is that if we take if we take loyalty as an individual thing, is that each, each person acts in a different way. If you bring a bunch of guys from another club across your club. The chances of them staying, if you've won a title, are pretty poor. Oh, okay. Because you're on your second or third club, you know. Like it's yeah. you're not going to have that that one club loyalty, are you? You know, you want to stay at your first club as long as you can. And when you go into your second, you're like, oh, I'll go to Catalan or I'll go to Leeds or I'll go to somewhere else, the Cowboys. So so once that if it doesn't quite work out in your favour, you're not going to have that. This is my club, you know. Like getting getting say. You know, Joey out of the Knights is very different to getting, say, Kamali out of the Sharks. Yeah, and I would guess too that you, what you would see in in the statistics side of it too is that once team wins premiership, everyone else values their players higher than maybe they normally would have, and that also affects the cohesion of a side, which affects why we. I mean, we haven't seen back to back premiers since the early, you know, nineteen nineties. <laughs> So that must have an effect as well, that you win a premiership and straight away your cohesion for your team is going to go down just because you're going to lose players because you can't afford to keep them. Yeah, I definitely agree. There's basically there's three clubs that have have won titles with what we would call externally shared experience, which was which was that Penrith team. Storm had a lot of guys out of like Hunter Mariners, Newcastle Knights, yep. um, uh, Western Reds. So they actually, like their first day they played together was not like, say, when the Knights played their first game and there was barely any previous shared experience. So they were already kind of like starting with something, you know. Um, and so once they, um, but, but those, those three teams over the next four years after they won a title, I think they averaged 10th. Now, if you, if you built it internally, as we call it, I think you average fifth over the next four years. So you build it and then you keep going because the guys who've started out at the club probably want to stay. Um, I was very interested actually by listening to, uh, to the, I don't know if you heard the podcast, Woolno interviewed. Uh, was it Woolno no. talking about his time at Manly? No, um, I, did, I did hear that one actually, yeah. 
yeah, it was really interesting. But talking about the fact that the Manly guys sort of said to each other, we are going to, you know, take a pay cut to, to, to stick together. You've got to do your, do your time, you know. Um, yeah. And that, that statistically, that Manly team was unbelievable in terms of the understanding they had between each other, sort of 07, 09 period. Um, they were pretty incredible. I was going to ask, did the, um, the North Queensland side of 2017 buck a lot of trends for you, given that, you know, their cohesion, I reckon, probably would have been based strongly around Thurston and Matt Scott, and both were injured for most of that year, yet they still made it to the grand final with a lot of young players. <laughs> Did that buck the trend, and is that something that's that would have been easy for you to, I suppose, track? So, so the thing that's interesting, um, so I can actually look at that team, so if I, I can bring up the numbers as we go. So the, the Cowboys in in seventeen, if if you take if you take just the spine, of course they went backwards, but if you take the actual amorphous mass of the whole. Their numbers have been pretty solid now since about 2006. Like, they've always been really well-constructed. Yep. A couple of things happened, interestingly, to the to the, the Cowboys, which is, I think, 2015, they were coming absolute a long way ahead of everyone else for cohesion with two rounds to go. And then they lost three blokes coming into the Cowboys uh, semi-final, I think it was, which was Lynette Winterstein O'Neill. Now, you wouldn't necessarily say that those were the absolute you know, stalwarts of the team, but losing those three guys meant the cohesion actually dropped by half. Wow. And part wow. of it is that actually if you've, got, if you've got 13 players in a team, very simple terms, you've got 13 players in a team, changing three players is 25%, right? Mm-hmm. But what, if you think of it in terms of relationships, it's actually like, it's actually like 40% of the team. So, so that might sound strange, but just actually the way that, that relationships works, it's exponential. So every time you add another player, you add more and more relationships as you go. Yeah. So if you change three players, it's, it's like 12, plus 11, 12 relationships plus 11 plus, plus 10. Yeah. So I think it's 33 out of 78, which is almost half, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that wiped them out for the year. Like they were done. I think they, they lost pretty heavily to the Roosters the next game. So... Three players out of 13 is not only 20%. It's more like 40%. Um, it depends, of course, on who you replace them with. <laughs> yeah, they brought in, I think, they brought in yeah. one or two rookies, I think. Callum Ponga, I think. They maybe. did. I think Ponga, Ponga, yeah, Ponga. So, so someone who hasn't played with the team, all of a sudden it has this sort of huge impact. And, and we're sort of changing in how we look at teams. We started off looking at teams as the strength of their relationships. But actually, it tends to actually be the weakness of the relationship. So the term that people have, which is a team is only as you know weak as its strongest link or weak, you know, yeah. um, that tends to be more accurate. So, so can, can you offset, can a team, because I understand that you also look at the lower grades as well to a certain extent, can a team offset that by bringing in a set group of players from its lower grade? So if, say, you lose your left centre and your left winger, can, are you more? Are you better off bringing in the left center and left winger from your lower grade team? And does that somewhat offset uh, the effect that it has in losing your players? It all it all depends upon the prior relationships. So have, have your other guys who would be playing around them played with them before? Okay. So or um, other is the reserve grade playing the same system as the top grade? Mm-hmm. Are those guys playing in the same position defensively? 
it becomes this rabbit hole that once you go down it, it starts to really do your head in. Like we started yeah. off one number and now we're at like 5,000 numbers per game. Yeah. Because so it just many, gets further and further down. So, so how many data sets do you think you'd be relying on for, for like a simple situation like that where you're trying to figure out, you know, who would be the best player to bring in to minimise the impact on cohesion from having a, a regular starter leave? I mean, we, when we started to look at um, English football, it was at least 10 million data sets. So, but, but, but it's – the further we go – and that wasn't – that was just looking at some of the really broad brush strokes of it. Um, so so we, we're starting to more look at, okay, we need uh, some more powerful computing. You know, um, and one of the biggest problems for us is the one hour between – the team list getting changed to the team list that takes the field. So, you know, over the weekend, you know, the teams come out on the Tuesday, we make our calculations, and then with an hour they go, they freaking change the team list of who's going to get on the field. And we're like, oh, okay, we've got to start again. Try to warm the computer up, and four hours later, games are even played <laughs> and the numbers come yeah. out. So, um, so we, have to get, we have to get much more powerful computing to be able to understand that. But also, too, within the context of the game, the reserves come on, the way the midfield shifts around, the way the third and fourth defenders move around, you know, none of it's locked. Yeah, um, yeah. So we're, we, I would say we're only 5% of our way into a real understanding of where this is at. Um, but mostly the way I've, I've constructed it is I'll just go and try to talk to coaches and ask them their experiences of playing, ask them their experiences of working together with other players. So, like, I would talk to Badiris about the spine you know, what's more important, nine to six, nine to seven, seven to one, and then try to come up with some ideas about how that's going to affect, um, how changes in that area are going to affect it, um, affect performance of the team. And then and then one of the most interesting parts that I've sort of been looking into is um, this idea about, about stress and memory. So um, I was talking to a doctor the other day and he was talking about how under pressure, not only is it very, very under stress, it's very, very difficult to take on information. And then under under real stress, you can't access your working memory. So if you've come into State of Origin camp and you've been given five days, right, for the Blues, and you've played with one of the blokes before, and then you and then you sort of like you you train through the week and it's all going okay, and then you go up to Lang Park and they're throwing cans at the bus. You get on the field, they're spitting at you, they're throwing coins at your head, you know. It's all, and all of a sudden you're 30 minutes in and you're like, what's the play? What, what do I do here defensively? Now, what, what, what happens is, is you actually go back to long-term memory. So you go back to what you learned at your club. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm like, do I defensively hold? Do I shift? Do I shoot? You'll go back to what you always did before. And all of a sudden, everything that you learned in those five days leading up goes completely blank. Yeah, and, and so you've, guys, I think we've back. heard Andrew Johns talk about that too. He'll say that it, there's you see some players they almost go into a, a state of shock when they run out, say on, on the MCG, and there's you know eighty seven thousand people there, and they've got you know the Queensland team all of a sudden running right, and and they just they're like a deer in the headlights for a while, and they'll say you know it's the quickest game. I sort of blinked, and it it was almost over so that that makes a lot of sense that you know you you just revert back to what you knew at your club side and if 
if at club level you were playing a different style of defence than what the State of Origin can switch it to do, you know, you can be stuffed after 15 minutes. Yeah, and you look at deer in the headlights. And I, and I think about that is how much of a relief would it be for Joey if he's looking across and there's beds there? Yeah, yeah, it's like, exactly. You just go back to what we do. And that's why, you know, Thurston Smith, Kronk Slater, State of Origin was so good because they played together since they were 12. Mm. There's no, even if they fall back to what they've known, it's still each other. You know, they, they, there's nothing, there's nothing under that, under that pressure they'll fall back to stuff they've already done together anyway. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're that new bloke, and so, you know, that's why if a Will Chambers comes in a state of origin, it's not that hard for him. You know, no yeah. offense to Will Chambers, but it's it's easier scenario knowing that that's going to happen. And so once you start to map the teams in that way, there is a certain amount of predictability in terms of the outcomes. One of the things I've actually been doing recently is is um, is is putting teams into what I'd call bands, and, and basically we said, okay, lo- there's a low cohesion team, medium cohesion, high cohesion, and then we looked at how they did. So, for example, if a low cohesion team plays a high cohesion team away from home, I think they only win like 12% of the games, something wow, like that. Wow. Whereas a high cohesion team at home will win something like 88% of its games. Wow. And it, but against other high cohesion, even they'll win 66% of the games. But then I, I came up with this other band, which was highly experienced but low cohesion. Mm-hmm. And I found that they had this really weird behavior, which is we call them a flat track bully. Mm-hmm. So against a low cohesion team, so let's call this, let's call it, um, I'm not going to give it a team name. Let's say, let's say high experience, low cohesion, right? So they played a lot of games of rugby league, but just not together. So Knights 13 would be a pretty good example of that. Mm-hmm. Well, Knights, Knights 12, 11, 11, 12, 13, under Wayne, um, under Wayne Bennett. Mm-hmm. So if they play a low cohesion team, I think the average was like uh, 32 to 8. Like they belt them. Yeah. Yep. But when they played against a low cohesion team, they seemed to fall apart. Mm-hmm. Now, if you remember that Knights team in 13, I think, the Roos, I think when they played a good team that year, the average margin was like 26 points or they had 26 points put on them. Mm-hmm. It's like they capitulate. Under pressure, okay. so they'll build, they'll build poor teams, but they won't be able to deal with duress. We call it complexity under duress, um, and so it's almost like there's gaps there in the team, but you can't tell they're there until the pressure comes on. Yeah, yeah. And so this high cohesion, this high experience, low cohesion team, you can't tell they're broken until they're broken. Oh, okay. Um, and so it's it's like we call it we call it a sort of a different type of team. So you'll put let's say for example you wanted to win the title for the NRL and you said okay let's go and let's go and put a team together sort of like Tinkler sort of said at the Knights you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm gonna put together a team and win the title. You put that team together and let's say you play at the time a low cohesion team. I don't know. So let's go an example of the Titans. They go up and belt them and everyone's really hopeful and excited. We've got a superstar team. This is fantastic. And then they would come up against the team, let's say the Roosters in the final, and they're like, just get, they get pretty soundly beaten. Yeah. And then everyone's like, well, you know, the coaches lost it. Wayne Bennett's terrible coach, you know, whatever it might be. The game's passed him by. There's all this sort of cognitive dissonance that takes place. You know, the, the, you know these guys, the players they bought, they're a bunch of no-hopers. 
but that behaviour of that team is actually quite predictable. Okay. They're not doing anything wrong. The coach isn't doing anything wrong. The players aren't doing anything wrong. The construction of the team stipulates that it should behave in the way it does. And it's interesting. It's just a different way to look at it, but certainly yeah. we find that's a very common trait, this kind of capitulation under pressure. But it's like... It's like when I go to the supermarket, I always give this example. I go to the supermarket locally. I know where everything is in my head, right? You know where the bread is. You know where the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the cat food is. Try going to a different supermarket, mm. and everything's in a different place. Mm-hmm. And so every time you turn up to where you think the cat food is, you're in completely the wrong aisle. Mm. Now, there's nothing I can do to change that. I can't change the map in my head. The only way I can do it is by going around the supermarket and, and figuring it out. But what I also have to do is I have to unlearn the previous supermarket that's in my head. So I'm yeah. dealing with two packs here. I'm dealing with the old supermarket and the new supermarket. And that's why we talk about purity of experience. Young players coming into your club that have never played anywhere else will learn faster. Yeah. And and so I guess when you look at the, at the average age of a team as well, I mean, that must come into it a certain to a certain extent as well because as you say as you if you've got a bunch of old heads um that have all come together at the same time they're not going to gel as quickly as a bunch of younger players who haven't got that that almost muscle memory that they've built up um do you see that in your statistics 100 percent, 100 so so the less experience they have the faster they learn Mm -hmm. but you have to have a stable environment if you've got if you've got chaos let's call it uncohesive chaos. It's very hard to bring kids into that environment mm-hmm. because they're not sure who to learn off. You know, they're not sure who to... I always think like poor Tim Manor. He's had like 130 different teammates or something. How many years But it's... But it's, uh, it's if, if the place is built right, those kids can come in. I mean, you think about Croft, how, hard, how much easier it's probably been for Croft at the Storm yeah. or Munster at the Storm than for other guys trying to fit into rosters. And it's like, okay, I've got a senior guy above me right now who's, who's, you know, Scott Prince or something, and then and then a year later it changes. You got another senior guy above you who's telling you a completely different way to do it. You know, it's got to be hard because you then don't have any continuity upon which to learn. So we look a lot at like the stability of the environment allows players to learn. If it's unstable, you got a different coach every two years. Yeah, it's very hard to learn anything because what you're learning keeps changing. The textbook keeps changing on you. So do you find so without sorry sorry I just right. have a question with, with that in mind do you find that there's a statistical threshold that a team uh, can pass where instead of trying to fix what they have they're better off almost scrapping what they've like letting the older players go and stuff and almost starting afresh with a younger group of players that they can build something upon build these these uh, the cohesion with. Uh, as a younger group because they're going to learn quicker to to be a cohesive group together and not have that hangover of the experienced players who might have uh, losing experience they've got and they've got too much of that memory that almost is a losing memory at some point is it do you get a threshold where you're better off going with the younger group I think that there's a there is a um, um, a couple of components to what you're saying I don't necessarily think that losing is a habit that damages people as much as people think. I think that but, but clearing the decks and then bringing another group of guys through together can be, can be helpful. Um, you, 
you know, people have talked a lot about we need some experienced players to show the young guys the way. Mm-hmm. I think if you were to look at an example of a club that did it really, really well, it would be Manchester United under Sir Alex Ferguson. But what he did was he brought them through the academy and brought them through the under-16s, you know, and then together, and then he sort of leaked them into the senior team. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that the problem with clearing the decks is a lot of the times you don't have permission to do it. You don't have permission from the fans to just go and get belted for a couple of years. So, so sometimes you know, like a club will say, right, we're going to go with youth, we're going to gut the place, completely start again. Um, and sort of the bulldogs are going through a bit of that at the moment. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I think that um, people have a bit of a they get pretty short-term um, memories, and if they feel like they're not winning particularly well, they're not, you know, they're head, the club's not sort of heading in the right direction. And the thing with development is it's very lumpy. So you might play a poor team and you win by two points and everyone's helpful, but if you've got a bunch of kids, you come out and play the Storm, they'll put 40 on you or, you know, maybe the Roosters. Mm. But it's actually, it's the performance is actually just as good. Yeah, It's yep. just that people don't see it that way. So I think the biggest thing, if you want to, if you wanted to go down that path, is you have to have permission to do it. You have to have permission from the board. You have to have permission to take some pain. And, you know, a lot of the conversations I've heard around certain clubs with their boards is, is and the coaches will say to us, I understand what you're saying, but I don't have permission to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't have permission to put it back together again and to lose for two seasons because I'll get fired. Yeah, and we've talked about that. We've, we've said that, you know, it's all well and good to say, that you you go in as a new coach and the club says, look, we know we need a clear out of players, but when you get to seasons like three, if and you you're not winning games, it's very easy for the club and the fans and stuff to say, well, look, you're going okay, but if you look at your whole time at the club, you've only won thirty percent of your games, and if you're a coach that's just trying to keep one of the sixteen head, you know, coaching jobs in the NRL. You're, that's a very, very risky thing to do. And most clubs aren't going to allow you that extra time to do that. And, and they're not going to listen to you with a, a favourable ear when you say, yeah, but I need another 18 months for this to all work out. I, I think probably one of the best examples of that was Maguire Souths. I think, mm-hmm. you know, you won a title with a, with, a, with a senior group. The club two years later was reloading, as you might want to call it. You know, reloading with a bunch of kids, and they're doing very well now. Yep. Um, and and the results that he was getting in that time, even though they won maybe let's say eight out of twenty-two games or whatever, that was actually great results. Yeah. And you could see those guys coming through, and the results were, from a data perspective, the results were matching exactly where they they should have been losing games by twenty points, twenty-five points. Yeah. They weren't underperforming. They were just underperforming in terms of public expectation. And so then, then you know, Maguire was moved on, and then the rewards are now coming for Souths. Now, mm-hmm. my expectation would probably be that if he was still there, they'd probably get the same results. Mm-hmm. But there's no, there's no evidence, there's no evidence the other way. Let me put it that way. And and you know, we know we know that there'll be examples. So Cowboys last year, they underperformed dramatically. Something else was up, but that's not that common. Most clubs don't underperform; they pretty much perform as they should. I was going to ask about um, we've we've spoken a lot about players and their cohesion, but do certain coaches, especially ones who are more more inclined to do the big cleanouts, like your Brian Smith, um, Tim Sheens, occasionally, are they also 
um, have a have a big impact on a team's cohesion as well. Because if they come into a side, you know, if Brian Smith went to Melbourne Storm tomorrow and decided he needed to do a clean out, would that have a big impact there and um, on on the cohesion and affect the team in a negative way? Even though Brian Smith himself isn't that bad a coach. Yeah, so I think if you if you separate the idea of list management and coaching, that when you when you decide to move a whole bunch of people on, and it depends it depends on what you do next. Do we then bring in young players? Do we bring in a whole bunch of players from other clubs? Do we bring them? Have they played together? There's a whole bunch of things that happen next, but then you'll get basically a level of understanding, and then you'll get a set of outcomes. So definitely, the you know, what I see as interesting a lot of the time with the clubs is sometimes the clubs will say to the coach, you do what you want to do. You just, you, if you want to make changes, go for it. You've got to have permission to do it until you start losing. And then we're going to start having a conversation. Um, and so oftentimes the board is not necessarily interested until they feel embarrassed or they might start to get in their ear and say, what's with this club? Um, and so the coaches sort of got this permission to change, except if you lose. So yeah. I definitely think that the guys can come in and make those type of changes. One of the things we found within the AFL that was quite interesting is if a club, a new coach came in too late to make changes to the list, his first year would tend to be very successful because mm-hmm. he had actually missed the window to make changes. And then at the end of their end of their first full season in charge, they're then given carte blanche to make the changes they want, and then the team will do worse. So, so I always say sometimes a paper bag is better than a coach because at least a paper bag is patient. Yeah, so, so, yeah. I've, I've said the same thing. I've said, uh, you know, a, a, a bucket of sand with a mop shoved in it would be do better than a lot of coaches, especially ones we've had at Penrith. Yeah, I mean, we actually do this kind of interesting thing with these teams. We actually do this, it might sound strange, we do this activity with Lego where people are building Lego together. And, and I get them to do it once, and they take, let's say, 20 minutes to do it, and then we do it again. And I go, I just leave the room, go get a cup of coffee. And so, like, all the scores go up, and I'm like, what is it about my leadership you thought that was so extraordinary that improved, you know, your performance? And they're like, you did nothing. I've said, exactly. I, You know, you get innate improvement. You keep a team together, it gets better. Yeah. You do the same thing again. You know, Einstein said the meaning of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again expecting a result where well, you should, you know. And so when a team, the problem is, is sticking together when you're losing. Because, and and we, we find this happens a lot, is a team will lose and it should lose. And so they say, okay, well, we have to make this thing called action bias. I've got to take action here. I've got to look to do something. And then when they do something, they change the team. Understanding goes backwards the team loses. Now, sometimes you'll make changes and you'll bring people back into the team and the cohesion will go up. But generally over time, like if you look at the teams that have made the most changes the last 10 years, it's and, and particularly if you take the state of origin, Storm and Broncos have guys coming out, the, the changes that the Storm, sorry, the Titans had at night the last 10 years is astronomical. Something like 700 changes, I think I counted the other day, mm-hmm. of, you know, take players in. And they're like, they're a long way north of the other clubs. Wow. But the problem is, is when you're winning, you keep the team. When you lose, you make change. And people say to me, well, what am I supposed to do? And it's like, that's, that's part of the problem is there's all this pressure on you 
to fix the problem. But sometimes the constant change is the problem. And that's that's a different way of looking at it. So is so when you look at the statistics then, is there the capacity to if a team needed to replace a player, say they needed to replace their left centre, are you able to look at the statistics and give a team an idea as to who maybe they should target so that it wouldn't affect their cohesion as much as it would in terms of how a player plays or how often they've played in just the same position they haven't been moved around from the wing to fullback or anything like that is have you looked at that at all yes so we 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 are doing that process we're doing that process with clubs we're doing that process ourselves but i would say that that if you're faced with a choice of requiring somebody to come into the team let's let's say let's say right we need to find a guy who's going to play left center for us for next year that in itself is a problem. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be having that conversation. So that that might sound really strange, but if you look if you look at the storm, I bet they know who the next guy is going to go after that, and probably mm-hmm. that because they're already in their system. Yeah. So when one guy there's a, there's a rule they actually have at LinkedIn, you know the the tech company, but it's called zero five two. Who replaces me tomorrow? Who replaces me in two years time? Who replaces me in five years time? They're already making those decisions so far ahead. Whereas you think about some of the more chaotic teams in the comp, they're not even sure who's supposed to be in the position this weekend. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, it's, it's almost the further ahead you're able to plan, and and not as a, as a term the Sydney Swans have, which is don't panic, it's organic. Is that to to look at those decisions in the right way with a long term view, the less sort of like decisions you're going to make off the cuff. And decisions off the cuff are the most dangerous ones. We mm-hmm. need someone who can do this tomorrow. That's when you start to stop doing your research on blokes. That's when you start to get, you know, behavioural issues. That's when you maybe bring guys in that aren't quite the right fit because it's all about we have to have somebody ready to go. And if you have someone ready to go, they'll tend to be more experienced. The more experienced they are, the, the harder it's going to be for them to be able to come and transfer straight into the team. Mm-hmm. Now, so, so with a team trade. like the Broncos, where yeah. they've because we've talked about this recently, um, and, and it looks like Seabol is basically running out Wayne Bennett's side, and the eyeball test, the the oh, you know old headed rugby league test says, well they need to make changes to the fullback, the halves aren't working and stuff, but the numbers might actually just suggest that the problem that the Broncos have is that they've had a few changes that they've being forced upon them up front and that that might actually be what is hurting their performance. <laughs> they may be better off just sticking with their halves as they are and their fullback as it is and and, and allowing the, the front row to settle down once again and then the results will come uh, in time. So it's not, it's not that different. But I know um, we've got a guy, uh, Benny Watkins, who does like he maps the teams for us, and uh, and and he was actually texting me during the game, and and one of the guys was saying, one of the commentators was saying, it looks like these two blokes have never played together, and he texted me and says, I looked at it, they haven't. Now it no. wasn't like they hadn't played at the Broncos together, but they'd never played there defensively together. Ah, oh, okay. So there's some there's some change in the order and the way they're set up, mm-hmm. um, in terms of the Broncos. So. Sometimes little mild changes 
little tweaks. And that could be Seabolt's decided to change the system to a certain extent. But the thing with rugby league is if if you you could you could have played with somebody your whole life but you may not have defended next to them. Okay. That's a very different scenario. Or yeah. like I know with the Warriors this year, there's two two edges of swap sides. Yeah. So you've got a guy who previously you were defending with who was on your right, now he's on your left. So they're, they're, I think they're inside three defenders on both sides of the field have actually swapped to the other side of the field. Mm-hmm. So that's where we first, when we first started out with our cohesion data, we're like, this team is exactly the same. But then when we actually mapped where they were standing, that was a different scenario. So, but I think I think you're right. I think it's just some small tweaks to the Brisbane team. And I, I, I don't know systematically what Seabold's done, but when he first started at South, I think their first six games, they struggled a bit too. So I think maybe he's made some other changes that are kind of like taking some time to to gel. I think the worst possible decision for Brisbane would be, right, this isn't working out, time to sack the coach. Yeah. Because that yeah. could be pretty catastrophic for the Broncos in the long term. How would you also, yeah. I suppose, deal with a player like like a Darius Boyd, who's looking like he's, his heart's not as much into the game as it once was, He's still getting the stats show that he's getting probably more ball now than what he was in previous years, and he's running the ball more, but he doesn't seem to be um, as proactive when it comes to creating opportunities and stuff like that for the for the Broncos in attack. And we've seen some of his defensive efforts slash lapses. And given yeah. he's very, always been a very good defensive player, it just sort of raises that question of whether his heart's in the game as much anymore and. Is is there any way to measure whether maybe a player like that has probably been in the game a bit too long and needs to be moved out so another player could move in and if that would have a long-term benefit for the side? I think that the hard part for, for Darius is the word I would describe is it looks ambiguous. It looks like he doesn't know what's going on. He's not sure where to be, what to do. And so when you get when you're not sure, you end up taking the middle point, and the middle point is always disastrous. Like I'm not I'm not sure where do I slot into this line defensively here, or it's like a wait and see. If it's wait and see, it's too late. So one of the things we could do is we said right, let's actually map the Broncos. Let's see how much change there is. If there's a large amount of change, then Darius is going to be probably pretty confused because he's used to such a different system up there. So he's having to maybe unlearn what he's learned before. And then, so he's he's struggling with it massively. I mean, you had to look at him at Newcastle. How much how hard was it for him there? He's, he just looked terrible. But then he go back and play for Queensland, and play the house down. Mm. So the thing for us is, is we say, if there is a lot of if there is a lot of change, there's going to be ambiguity. There's going to be ambiguity. There's going to be stress. There's going to be players unable to perform very well. So you may not even be able to tell if a player is out of sorts. Now, if, if everything is stable and they're out of sorts, that's a pretty clear sign something else is up. So I, I liken this to coaching. If a team is low cohesion, the co- you can't even tell if the coach can coach. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. like, I would have lost just as many games as Bellamy for State of Origin, yeah. right? And it's not because I, it's not because I can coach because I can't coach, but Bellamy couldn't fix that problem either. And so, so it's a case of saying if there is huge amounts of change, then it's very difficult to tell if someone's heart's in it because you can also, if a player is, is dramatically underperforming, that may be something else. 
And so it could be what else is going on. I mean, I, I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater because it might take another 12 weeks and all of a sudden Boyd's hitting the form of his life. Mm-hmm. And the difficulty is, is to look at that person and say, he's not trying. Or the classic is, I want a player who's going to show pride in the jersey. Yeah. You, know, you have all these statements that coaches make when the team is underperforming. I want, you know, I want players to have pride. I want players to want to be out there to play for the team. Um, a lot of that stuff isn't isn't really the case. It's just a um, the team is is not performing to the public capacity, but sometimes there's other reasons at play. So, how often do you see statistical anomalies crop up where it might be, say, uh, an older player who they just play that season too long and their legs are gone, <coughs> or a young player who maybe in the lower grades they were they looked all right, but for whatever reason they come into a new season they're given a chance in first grade and they just kill it. Do you see that very often or is that, are you able to map that the vast majority of the time? You can map it in terms of that if, if a, you know, if you're going to put a, play, a young player into a team, you put them into the Roosters, you put them into the Storm and because everything else is in place, it's pretty easy for them to come out and look pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Where we don't see so much of, of anomalies is, for example, we, you don't see the low cohesion teams winning. You just it just doesn't happen, like it hasn't happened since we've been mapping teams in terms of a season. You can have one off games, you know, like Warriors almost pulled it off last night against yeah. the Storm. Um, but you you find that the high cohesion teams they'll they'll always find a way to jag the win in the last minute. Yeah, As Queensland State of Origin, you know, so they or the the Storm have got a, a history of doing it. It's like under pressure when everything. For the opposition, sort of like is is on the line. The storm will come through, and the other team will struggle. Um, but if there's a there's a number we use, which is like uh, say minimum of 2.0 for cohesion. You know, no one's ever won a title since '86 uh, um, in the NRL or Super League or ARL, all the different versions of the competition. But what's interesting is the competition is getting more cohesive every year, oh. and it's been doing so now for about eight or nine years. And the area that cohesion manifests itself the most is defence. And you guys have probably noticed this, but the scores are coming down. Yeah, better defensive teams yeah. this year all round. Last year, I think, had some of the had the highest number, I think, of close games with the yeah, margin under 10, I think. 10, I think in... scoring, scoring comps since 97 last year. Well, it was one of them really close yeah. to that. And so one of the things, though, also, as a, as a not a counter to that, but an added to that, is last year every single spine changed. I haven't seen that before, where every single all all sixteen spines had a change to them. Mm-hmm. Generally, at least one or two spines will stay the same. This year is probably the most stable and predictable seasons we've seen in the NRL uh, over the years we've been looking at it. So we've been, we've we've mapped it now from '86 to today, um, and so it's 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 definitely playing out. Generally, if you look at the betting market, the betting market's very very inaccurate in the early rounds. Mm-hmm. This year it's very accurate um, because basically the, the market's not very good. It, everything's built off form, and so in the early rounds of every comp, the changes are made to the teams, and so the teams don't perform how everyone should, and then they go, oh, yeah, this year Penrith's good or Penrith's bad, mm-hmm. and then the market figures it out. Whereas this year, because the teams haven't really changed, the market's pretty much got it right. Whereas last year, um, all the spines changed. I think the market in the first six weeks was like 55% right. It was really inaccurate in the first. And the other thing I think that affected last year was the um, 
the Rugby League World Cup. You had a lot of guys coming back really late. So I think, you know, Storm didn't start their preseason with their entire team until like two weeks till the comp starts. You know, whereas normally, and so Wests and uh, Knights and the Titans, they all got a bit of a head start in the preseason. So we, we find that in rugby too, like the Canterbury Crusaders, which is basically the All Blacks, they're terrible in the first five rounds of Super Rugby. So they'll kind of take a bit of time to warm up. Mm-hmm. So um, last year that was a little bit of the case. The Rugby League World Cup kind of delayed everyone's preseason. And so that would have an effect too, because I've been a big um, big critic of the World Club Challenge played in, in February and, and the effect that it has on an NRL club's preseason because it, it just takes them out of their preseason. It doesn't allow them to focus on getting ready for the NRL season. I mean, that would have an effect on that as well. Yeah, definitely. You, you, you know, part of the, one of the hard parts for us is trying to measure training time. You know, um, so we were sort of looking at okay, when because because there's certain stipulations around the rulings of when players could come back post regular World Cup. I think they'd have six weeks off or something like that. Yeah, they mandated it. Yeah, but the um, the, yeah that that sort of two weeks of flying to to Northern England, you know, it all takes you out. Um, and it all kind of delays everything, and it's something harder for the premiers to to deal with. Um, I mean, I think generally, the thing that I find is that is that generally the the number one the number one cohesion team in the comp will come first, but that isn't necessarily the team that wins the comp. Mm-hmm. So you can actually start. I mean, you look at Cronulla in fifteen. I think is a good example of this. They lost three of their first four. So one of the things that happens is that. Teams or, or Parramatta in 09, you know, they might start off terribly uncohesive and then the season goes, they'll come home like a freight train. And if they get themselves in the eight, they give themselves a shot. And this is why first past the post doesn't always necessarily mean the team that is the most cohesive wins the comp. You might have a great year, make the semis, you get an injury in the semi final, one of your spine players out. I think, you know, Cameron Smith getting injured against Manly is 07 or 08. Just that's it, you're done. So mm-hmm. it, it isn't necessarily the best. I won't say the best team to win the comp because obviously that's taking the piss out of people who win the comp. <laughs> but it's, it definitely acts in a different way. It's not like it's first past the post. But it's first past the post, Stephen Roosters and Storm would be even more dominant probably than they are. Right? So the other, the other, sorry, the other interesting part I was going to mention was the team generally that is the most, the best defence. Um, tends to do better than the team that has the best attack. And so cohesion affects defence the most. Most people are recruiting to buy attacking players, whereas they should actually be recruiting to build understanding because the more understanding you have, the more chance you have of winning the comp. So with that in mind, um, two questions I have for you. What, over, since you've been looking back back retrospectively at, at the say the NRL competition, going back to all of the RLs that it's been called, what yeah. has been the best team of all time going back to the, when you first started tracking it and who this season looks like the team that you would say going by statistics at just at this very early stage in the season, um, who looks like they're on track to, to at least have a good season going ahead if everything falls into place and, and their cohesion stays together. So so um, the, probably the first team that was truly dominant across... So, so if you think about cohesion's been going up and up and up, 
right? Mm-hmm. So let's say we take that number of 2.0, you need to be at least probably 2.5 to win the comp. Originally, the average for the comp was 1.2, right? Oh, wow. Now it's 1.9. So it's gone up dramatically. Mm-hmm. So now now it'll probably, you probably need to be three, three to four to win it. Mm-hmm. So that takes longer to build it, to put a team together to be successful than it used to. And if you look at the comp around the world that's the most cohesive, it's the uh, it's the AFL, and you can't throw a team together in the AFL and win it. Like GWS is six, seven years in, they're still they're still trying. Whereas you could put the storm together in two years and you could win it if you were stable enough and you had enough borrowed. So the team that was the most dominant early and it was the most comparatively dominant was the Eels. Their their numbers were ridiculous. So eight, oh, six, yeah. seven. Um uh, and then and then it shifted on to Broncos. I think the team that probably might surprise people, and, and they didn't win titles, but they were very, very well constructed, was the, the late 90s North Sydney Bears. Yep, they yep. Very impressive. And they weren't, they weren't a bunch of superstars, but they did, you know, they, they were, they, they, they got themselves into positions to win the title. They didn't do it. But at least, you know, cohesion wasn't their problem. I think the Super League war took a toll, mm-hmm. and certainly during that time, in a way, like the, the, the Storm's success in that period came off the back of the churn that had taken place. Mm-hmm. So I think between, say, 95 and 02, there was something like 22 to 24 changes in the comp of teams coming, going, not even the renaming, not even the, you know, Balmain changing to Sydney, but just the, the, the merging, demerging, the coming and going of teams was so heavy that only a couple of teams really stuck together. And if you look at, you know, when that war happened, there was there was a couple of teams that stuck together through that period, which was Newcastle, uh, Manly, and Broncos. Mm-hmm. Those those teams basically stayed intact, whereas almost all the other clubs were play, blokes going all over the shop. And so it took a while for, for teams to recover from all of that. Um, and so the whole comp went down from a cohesion perspective during that period of time. In terms of this year, Souths. That was no way. really good. Yeah, really, really good. Um, and so they're in a pretty good position. And the other one is the Raiders. The um, Raiders. Yeah, definitely. So there's there's basically there's basically you know Roosters, Storm, um, Souths, and Canberra, and then the Broncos are not too far behind. But there's some other stuff there structurally. Like there's there's if there's, there's there's a whole range of different numbers that we use, but certainly the Broncos are are a bit of a ways behind them, and then there's kind of like everybody else um, in the sort of uh, mid range, and then there's some other clubs that are uh, it's not great. Yeah. I was going to ask um, to sort of change the topic, I guess. Now, is is the work that you do restricted just to sports, or have you found a use for it in, in other areas away from sporting organisations and the like? <laughs> Well, the one thing we know is that sporting teams don't have any money uh, or they want everything for free. Um, <laughs> that's their experience of it so far. And so, and also I think that boards don't necessarily want to know that it comes down to governance. Um, that might sound strange, but we've had a thing we call the game line, uh, uh, game line curse, which is if a coach asks us to present it to the board, he's only got a couple of weeks left till he's fired. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so it's sort of like it's too late now, you know. Um, it's mm. happened across NRL. Uh, it's happened in rugby union. It's happened in AFL. Um, so I, I'd say that, that um, 
where we actually do most of our work at the moment is corporate. So we, we, we've split the business in half. We do corporate and we do uh, sport. But we use, we use rugby league, rugby union as our giant sort of testing bed for our ideas and then talking to people. And we also use it as a uh, – when I present to people, if I say, you know, are you, are you the Melbourne Storm or are you the Gold Coast Chargers? And they'll look at us and go, oh, we're the Gold Coast Chargers. Yeah, okay. So they, they find that easier uh, as, an ex- as a set of examples than maybe a little bit more sort of like self-reflection. So we sort of use sport as a, as a set of stories. And so everybody knows it. It's incredible. You go to talk to CEOs and they can't remember who their CFO was last year, but they know he played in the 83 grand final. So um, it tends to give you – people have a pretty good um, memory and so they – they can sort of reflect on their favourite sporting teams and it also sort of takes them out of it a bit. Um, and and the thing I say to them is, as a coach, I've made every single poor decision that I'm going to talk about. I've tried to destroy clubs, not doing it on purpose, but I've made mistakes here that have yeah. affected performance over the long term and even even had an effect after I left. Um, you know, I had a negative impact on a place after I left, not, not, by, not by trying to make it worse, by trying to make it better. It makes me wonder where our podcast is on that team list. Hey, what would we be? Would we be a, you know, Melbourne Storm, or would we be a Western Suburbs Magpies? <laughs> Cumberland. Well, you are yeah. the early establishment phase. You're at the early establishment phase of your success, and if you continue to do things, you'll get better. You know, you 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 listen to people on the radio who talk over each other. They're probably on their early early recordings. Okay, yeah. you know, in tw- in two years' time, go back and have a listen to it at the start, and you go, oh my god, that was awful. Because now, you know, you establish that level of understanding. It just gets cleaner as you go. Mm-hmm. Very well thought. Um, yeah, I guess um, we could almost wrap it up. That's, that's been an absolutely fascinating thing. Um, the, the, whole, the whole statistics side of things and the, what, what you're doing with it, um, for me, is so unique and um, so amazing. Uh, it just staggers me that it's not something that's more commonplace because it's most, most statistical sort of things that you have, it's all retrospective. It's all looking at something from the past. It's not being used in any way, you know, in a major way to help shape, you know, movement going forward or how to be better. As you said at the very start, um, all the stats that rugby league has, it's all just another form of a result. And a lot of the stats collected don't really... They don't really properly show the the impact of each stat. So, you know, each line break is different. One will lead to a try or create a try. Another one will just see a bloke get tackled down the field and you never know, could lose the ball in the tackle. But they're, they're counted the same. And that's the thing that's fascinating about this is that there's so much data that's gone into it and it's looking at much bigger, much deeper issues than what the basic stats were fed from websites all the time and what a lot of media outlets keep re- keep referring to, I guess. Yeah, and I think that it's it's um, well, one we couldn't do it without uh, without pages like Rugby League Project. I mean, you've got to have such you've had such a great level of retrospective history that people can draw on. Because if you don't have it, you know what we find with most teams that we talk to. I remember talking to an AF club and they said this is really interesting. You should have talked to our board two years ago. And we said we did, but none of you are in the room. <laughs> yeah, so, they, so we so we talked to the same club, but different people were there. So, what thing a thing like Rugby League Project does actually gives a club memory. 
you know, you can look at the transfers page of each club and mm. and all the players that have come and gone. You know, just looking at that collectively is really amazing. And um, and so most clubs don't have a memory. They don't think about the decisions they've made collectively, and they don't think of decisions as collect as if, as a, as affecting them collectively. Like, look at all the players who've come and gone over this period of time, or or, or you know, when this guy started, he started playing with. He, he's been in left centre with this bloke now for for twelve years. You know, you go back and look at the videos of Cronk Smith, Slater, and Inglis at Brisbane North. That affects. That still affects the club today. Mm. You know those those games. So, so I think that um, uh, the the uh, slowly but surely, as history started to come online, that makes it easier for us. It's easier than going and collecting um, old programs and taking photos of them, um, and getting a sense of, of of where clubs are at over the long period, and then helping them to make maybe better decisions. Um, because no decision exists in isolation. If you think yeah. just bringing a Jared Hayne into your club is going to have no impact, you're kidding yourselves. Yeah, and, and that makes sense looking back at his return to the Eels and, and you sort of thought, well, this is going to be, you know, he's going to be back, he'll, you know, fit right in, he he knows the place, but in reality it just messed everything up and uh, he didn't perform all that well, as uh, although he's a, a great individual talent because it messed up a lot of their cohesion. It, it, it did the opposite to what you thought it would do. Well, we, we, I call it the last man in the bar. Is if you've if you've if you go back to the nightclub you went to when you were nineteen, no one in there knows who you are anymore. You're just an old bloke wandering around, not knowing anybody. Yeah. So if if everyone has come and gone from that club when you were there, then coming there's no point going back. If yeah. everyone's still, if Cameron Smith left the Storm for a couple of years and goes back in again, he pretty much knows everybody. He knows the systems and how it works. Yeah. And so in in part of it, part of the disservice to Jared is that the the, the eels had changed so much since he'd left yeah. that it was just the same. It was just the same jersey. That was it. Everything else was different. Is there a, a different, like, is there a sport there where where cohesion is more important than other sports, or is it kind of the same across every sport? Like, is it is it more important in soccer, for instance, than rugby league? Rugby league is probably one of the most important I've found so far. Um, however, and it depends upon um, uh, an invasive sport where the people are defending together as a line, it seems to really affect it because mm-hmm. having the, the understanding of the person next to you is extremely important. Whereas, say, ice hockey, it's not so much because you're functioning in a 360-degree... Um, uh, it's, 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 not, it's not invasive. You're not trying to get through a line. Yep. And also you've got people coming and going off the, the court all the time. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, but and baseball is probably another one. Baseball, which is just basically purchasing individual skill sets. Um, there's some level of understanding. So, um, I would say, you know, I, I found it. For example, it affects it affects um, pairs figure skating dramatically. You know, I think <laughs> no one's ever no one's ever no one's ever changed partners in what a world championship in ice dancing um, oh, since 1954. So, like it, every single sport, it's the same. But different. Yeah. The, the overriding drivers are the same, but then almost on a, on a depends upon the makeup of the sport. But like it's you know most of our most of our research actually comes out of military, uh, HR data, um, airline flight crews, surgery crews. We've just applied it to sport, and so mm-hmm. um, the fundamentals of the overall are the same. You know, with a accounting firm or a or a or an um, ambulance crew. 
Um, but the the way that each sport is structured affects how it's affected by cohesion. That's all just absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, so I could talk to you for several I know, hours. I was just thinking the same I could talk to you for three years, <laughs> hey? <laughs> I, I had a... Um, ben, ben organized me to go meet him back in uh, January this year, and I was just fascinated the whole time, and the conversation only ended because I had to bloody dart off because the missus was driving around waiting for me to go home. <laughs> um, it's fascinating stuff. If you want to check out what, what Ben does, um, go to gainline.biz, B-I-Z. Um, yeah, it's bloody fascinating stuff there. And where else can they get in touch with you, mate? Oh, we're on Facebook. Um, we're on Twitter. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, please go to the website if you if – you, if, I mean – this is my advertising part. We, we we don't make a lot of money in sport. It's mostly through speaking, corporate speaking, uh, making presentations. We do workshops. So if you ever need a speaker or ever need um, a presentation made, please feel free to get in touch with us through our website. Absolutely. We'll um, we'll try and throw up a few links and promos for it where we can as well. Um, th- thanks for coming on, mate. That was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, thank you. That was great. Cheers, boys. I really appreciate it. And... Um, yeah, always happy to have a conversation around this stuff, particularly uh, uh, State of Origin is a really good study in this stuff. Don't, don't, don't you worry, mate. You'll be coming back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll wrap it up. Thanks, thanks, Freaky, again for another great show. Yep. Thank you, Andrew. And, thank you, Ben. Uh, thank you, Ben. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll catch you all later. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it.